a world mercenary army. That is what they're doing, of course, with the likes of Blackwater and other organizations, which have been quietly there for many, many, many years being set up. They hire the best mercenaries, the ones who enjoy what they do and are well paid to do it. They follow orders. What really runs the world? The world is run by think tanks and foundations, a system talked about by Albert Pike in the 1800s and Adam Weishaupt to do with running the world through masses of money concentrated in a few hands funding philanthropies. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. And just before the break, I was talking about how the foundations were set up a long time ago to front for the already existent aristocracies of mainly Europe, but combining that of America as well, eventually. And they set up these non-governmental organizations. There would be think tanks. They would create public policy. Their members would come in and out of politics. They would be embedded within the bureaucracies. And they do exist. Margaret Thatcher talked about the parallel government that she belonged to. She was referring to the Royal Institute of International Affairs and its American branch, the Council on Foreign Relations. Everything that's printed in the Foreign Relations magazine comes to pass. They give you the future because they're all working towards this particular future. Tremendous power because they have access to government. They can be in government and they can supposedly serve the public at the same time. Something that was mentioned by Albert Pike about the foundations, how they create foundations which would amass a massive wealth and they become masters over the masters of the world. And they run under philanthropy. That's the greatest guise. And they're all interrelated. I've never really seen one of these major think tanks or foundations that is not on the same track as all the other ones. They're really specialized blocks. They specialize in their own areas to guide public opinion, guide political opinion as well, and get laws passed too, which sometimes they draft up, like the amalgamation of the Americas. They see a far took credit for that. Private organization, non-governmental. And here's an article from Bloomberg.com, November the 18th says three blocks from the White House on the 10th floor of a sleek glass building, young workers pound at computers with giant flat-screen TVs overhead. It has the look and feel of a high-tech startup. In many ways it is. The product is ideas, thanks in part to funding from benefactors such as billionaire George Soros at the Center for American Progress, another big foundation, a think tank, you see. It's become in just five years an intellectual wellspring for democratic policy proposals. This is the other side of the dialectic, including many that are shaping the agenda of the new Obama administration. Much as the Heritage Foundation provided intellectual heft for the Republican Party 
in the 1980s, CAP has been an incubator, like the cap, or the top of the capstone, for liberal thought and helped build the platform that triumphed in the 2008 campaign. What CAP has done is recapture the role of ideas as an important political force, something the Republicans have been better at for 25 years, said Walter Isaacson, president of the Aspen Institute, another one, see, another nonpartisan policy research organization in Washington. CAP's president and founder, John Podesta, 59, former chief of staff to President Bill Clinton, is one of the three people running the transition team for President-elect Barack Obama, 47. A squadron of CAP experts is working with them. Some of the group's recommendations already have been adopted by the president-elect. You see, the president-elect is just a front man for the agenda. And the public are generally unaware of the big foundations and philanthropic characters behind them. They've never looked into their characters or what their, particular, their viewpoints are on their, their nation, never mind the entire planet. So some of the group's recommendations have been adopted, such as withdrawal of troops. These include the center's call for gradual withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq and a buildup of forces in Afghanistan. They want to build up forces there because they've got to guard the poppy fields for the heroin trade. A plan for universal health coverage, now remember what I said before, Lenin talked about services created in the West, which would become authorities. And under the United Nations proposals, which Mr. Soros backs completely, if they get the most basic health care worldwide as possible. And anyone visiting Canada should walk into one of the clinics here, and you'll see what they mean by basic. And it says here they're going to create green jobs linked to alleviating global climate change. We should have weathered now of climate change. CAP is also advocating the creation of a National Energy Council headed by an official with the stature of the National Security Advisor and who will be charged with transforming the energy base of the U.S. That's a big, big project. That's going to be a big stick on everyone. And here it is created by another independent, non-governmental organization using their front man, Obama. To help promote its ideas, CAP employs 11 full-time bloggers who contribute to two websites, Think Progress and Walk Room. Others prepare daily feeds for radio stations. The center's policy briefings are standing room only, packed with lobbyists, advocacy group representatives, and reporters looking for insights on where the Obama administration is headed. So you should read this for yourself, because this is a standard technique. You put a man in, and he reads speeches written by professional speechwriters who work with the big think tanks. We don't have democracy. It, it does not exist. You have a parallel government with specialized areas and think tanks working in their own particular area, running the world. And it's been like that for an awful long time. The professor Carol Quigley, who was the historian for the CFR, stated in his own book, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American establishment, that this power government had already been in existence for 60 years, and he wrote the book in the 1960s. The Council on Foreign Relations was set up in the, the Harold Pratt building in New York. Harold Pratt, the Pratt family, were deeply involved with the Anglo-American establishment 
and the Royal Institute of International Affairs. It was, it was they who, again, under this philanthropy set up that comes from Foreign Relations Headquarters. Now, remember, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, their main office in England and London, was also turned into the home of the OSS during World War II. Why? You see, they are the OSS. They are the OSS. They became MI6. MI6, like all of their organizations in Britain, have their official wing, often militarized, and the unofficial one, which is, works amongst the civilian populations, and that is the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And they make sure that the top authors, professors who have a voice in the media, are chosen by them. They are members of the RIIA. That's how they run the world. In the U.S., they use the front men through the Council on Foreign Relations. And you see, all these major think tanks are specialized in their own particular area. It's hard for Americans to understand and believe that in Canada, they give out more information about the U.S. than they do in the U.S., such as in 2005, but on the mainstream news, during the, the signature agreement between the U.S. President, Canadian Prime Minister, and the Mexican President, to sign the first open integration treaty for the Americas, that the whole show was presented on mainstream news by the Council on Foreign Relations, who admitted that they drafted up the whole idea, and even the documents that were being signed by the presidents and prime ministers. The same group brought in the income tax bills in the United States, and the Royal Institute brought it in, or the Institute for International Affairs brought it in in Britain at the same time. The same with property taxes. You'll find they've been behind all of the major moves towards what is thought of as socialism, and it's often confused with communism because the aims are identical. Remember, there are other major think tanks, the Club of Rome, where the founders of that particular one state in their own, their own book, The First Global Revolution, that they looked at all of the systems of the world, and they found that collectivism, which is communism, was best suited to rule the people for the future. Carl Quigley said the same thing. He said, we, the Council of Foreign Relations, work with dictators. We work with communists, fascists, and so on. We don't mind. Because the whole idea is to get all of those characters working towards the same agenda. And it does become confusing to the novice. That's why you have to go in to the writings to find out what it's really, really all about. Prestige and prestigious institutions are lusted after by people of every race. Those who get up into running and have a big say in their country want to belong to these big organizations. It's like being knighted, very, very similar. You have honors conferred on you. It gives you a lot of privileges. You're above the law on many, in many aspects. You can actually be a sovereign entity have like the Knights of Malta and be an internationalist. You can have an international passport and diplomatic immunity. 
mean you don't get patted down and prodded at airports or your bags opened and searched. So people from all races want to join this. And it's not the Jews, it's not the Germans, it's not this and it's not that. It's just that the aristocracy of each one, those who have made it up there above the common herd financially, by any means that they could, want to get into this privileged global club with all of the benefits that it confers upon its members. I'll be back with more about this after this break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. Mentioning the big foundations and how foreign policy and domestic policy is created, not from the public itself, not through democracy, not through the promises that are given during political campaigns, but by by the big foundations and organizations that are behind the front men, the politicians that are groomed and trained for their roles. And all these think tanks and foundations are all on the same track. That's what you do find out. That's the pyramid. Look at all the blocks that build the pyramid. That's what they are. And they use the dialectic on the public, left wing, right wing, and so on. But it's all the same agenda. Because when you go into the creation of, say, the Fabian Society, for instance, you find that the founders were eugenicists first, They were members of the elite. They were authors, professors, advocates of the British system who did believe that the best way to help the poor was to simply eradicate them. They were the ones who looked at the world, looked at the poverty, looked at the fallout from the industrial era, knowing that it was only a short-term phase we were going through and that other eras like technology would come after industry. And they wouldn't need all those people anymore. But to the working classes, they're seen as some kind of working class hero. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everyone's been had in the system. Here's an article from Hysterical and Hysterical. That's a good title. It's Historical, which is Hysterical. And Investigative Research. That's hirhome.com. March the 4th, 2008, it says, What is the Council on Foreign Relations? History shows that the policies debated and proposed by the CFR almost always become U.S. foreign policy, and yet the CFR is supposed to be a private organization. Very little is known about it, and political scientists almost never investigate it. It pays to study the CFR, however, if we wish to understand how power works in the United States and what ideology the U.S. ruling elite answers to. And it says, an introduction, in 1977, political scientist Thomas Dye delivered his presidential address to the Southern Political Science Association at the University of California at Santa Cruz. His topic, the role of allegedly private policy-making organizations in determining U.S. policy. 
His address was then published in 1978 as a research paper in the Journals of Politics, and much space was devoted to the importance of the Council on Foreign Relations in the making of United States foreign policy. All around, this was a rare event that helped correct a feeling identified by sociologist G. William Domhoff in his 1970 book, The Higher Circles, The Governing Class in America. There has never been any research paper on the CFR in any scholarly journal indexed in the Social Science and Humanities Index. Many political scientists apparently thought this was a proper statement of affairs and wanted matters to remain thus, because Dyer wrote in the first page, I appreciate the assistance of G. William Domhoff, University of California, Santa Cruz. I apologize to those eminent political scientists who told me that studying the activities of private policymakers was not political science. It is certainly curious that eminent political scientists should be opposed to research on the Council of Foreign Relations and other supposedly private policy organizations. We should return to these matters. First, however, let us get a sense for what the CFR is and give some context to evaluate Dai's use of the phrase private policymakers in reference to this organization. This political scientist Lester Milbraith observes that the influence of the CFR throughout the government is so pervasive that it is difficult to distinguish the Council on Foreign Relations from government programs. The Council on Foreign Relations, while not financed by government, works so closely with it that it is difficult to distinguish council actions stimulated by government from autonomous actions. You could say in reverse direction as well. It's difficult to distinguish government actions stimulated from the council from autonomous government action. That gives a list of quite major U.S. foreign policy initiatives which is CFR-led, including both the initial decision to intervene militarily in Vietnam and the later decision to withdraw. Further, he points out that many important members of the CFR are simultaneously top government office holders. For example, council members in the Kennedy-Johnson administration included Secretary of State Dean Rusk, National Security Advisor McGeorge P. Bundy, CIA Director John McCone, and Under Secretary of State George Ball. A list of important figures in the CFR over the years up to 1978, which Dye also provides, shows that many are former top officials in the United States government. But the CFR is not merely where present and former officeholders meet, it's also an incubator for future officeholders. As William Domhoff observed, Douglas Cater, a journalist from Exeter and Harvard who served on the staff of President Lyndon B. Johnson, has noted that a diligent scholar would do well to delve into the role of the purely unofficial Council on Foreign Relations in the care and breeding of an incipient American establishment. Turning to the all-important question of government involvement, the point is made most authoritatively by John J. McCloy, a director of CFR and a government appointee in a variety of roles since the early 1940s. This is what he said. Whenever we needed a man, said McCloy, in explaining the presence of CFR members in the modern defense establishment, we thumbed through the role of council members and put through a call to New York, the Harold Pratt building. I'll be back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Where I try to fill in all the little bits and details in history they omit from the history books. And I urge everyone to look into Carl Quigley's The Anglo-American Establishment. To find out that the Council on Foreign Relations is just the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs based in London, England. And he gives the history of the main players and how they set it up and what their goals were, world governments, but particular world governments. And he goes into that in good detail. But he continue with this article from hirhome.com. It says, in what sense then can we say that the CFR is private? In this technical sense, the money to support CFR comes from private foundations and corporations. It is obvious now why the CFR was called by Washington journalist Joseph Kraft, a school for statesmen, which comes close to being an organ of what C. Wright Mills has called the power elite, a group of men similar in interest and outlook, shaping events from invulnerable positions behind the scenes. Financial backers of the CFR get to turn their views into policy without the scrutiny of the company running for office under the cover of a supposedly private organization. Now, Quigley also said that the technocrats, as they call the Kissingers and the Brzezinskis and the Maurice Strongs and many others that run around the world attending global meetings and putting down policy and creating the Air Summit and so on, he said they're the ones who wield the real power, not the presidents or prime ministers, and they're not answerable to the public so this article is verifying that, that fact. It's much easier when they're not under public scrutiny. By the public generally never knows what they're up to. Doesn't even know what they are, in fact. It says, even the academic world of eminent political scientists, as, as we have seen, cooperates in keeping the CFR in a penumbra because, according to them, studying what the CFR does is supposedly not political science. Well, it's not. They don't play politics. They create agendas. Big difference. They create public policy. This penumbra obscures not only the process of foreign policy making in the United States, but in the Western world as a whole. Thomas Dye writes, a discussion of the CFR would be incomplete without some reference to its multinational arm, the Trilateral Commission. The Trilateral Commission was established by CFR Board Chairman David Rockefeller in 1972 with the backing of the Council and the Rockefeller Foundation. See, they really run the world, the foundations, and they fund them. Because when people thought they were given democracy, it was, a, it was a sham. The elite were not going to give up power, ever. And they created democracy for the public and their own foundation-run system, the parallel government, which is the real government to get things done. That's what Maggie Thatcher said. She says, you can get things done quickly without all the haggling and debates that go on in Parliament. Says here, the Trilateral Commission is a small group of top officials of multinational corporations and governmental leaders of industrialized nations who meet periodically to coordinate policy among the United States, Western world, and Japan. And that's the key, how all these foundations work. They must be coordinated with each other, in sync, and they are. This article goes down and down with some of the early leaders who set it up, the funding, the foundations, and so on. But he, they come to this stage where they say, well, what do they all have in common, these very rich people? And what they do find is that the founders were all eugenicists, 
Darwinists and Eugenicists. From Woodrow Wilson, J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers. So it's funded by money from the Rockefeller Carnegie Foundations and then also by the Ford Foundations. Do these varied interests have anything dramatic and telling in common? The answer is yes, they were all backers of the eugenics movement, and they still are. The American eugenics ideology is not familiar to most people because discussion of the American eugenics movement, despite this having been perhaps the most important social and political movement of the first half of the 20th century, somehow never makes it into high school and university, university curricula. I used to do the following experiment with my college students at the University of Pennsylvania, an Ivy League school. I would ask them to raise their hands if they'd heard of the eugenics movement. Nothing moved. The eugenics ideology has the following main components. It claims that Germanic stock, actually Prussian really, the so-called white Aryan or Nordic race is biologically superior. Number two, it proposes that Germans ought to rule the world as a master race. And three, it wishes to curtail the reproduction of inferiors, defectives, and degenerates, or else to exterminate them. In his detailed study of the American eugenics movement, War Against the Weak, Eugenics and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race, published in 2003, historian Edwin Black writes, In 1916, American eugenicist Madison Grant's The Passing of the Great Race declared that the white Nordic race was destined to rule the world, and confirmed the Aryan people's role in it. German nationalists were heartened by America's recognition of Nordic and Aryan racial superiority. Reviews of the book inspired a spectrum of German scientists and nationalists to think eugenically, even before the work was translated into German. American eugenics leader Harry Lachlan prepared a detailed pro-German speech for the ninth annual meeting of the Eugenics Research Association held at the Carnegie Institution's complex at Cold Springs Harbor, that was all based on eugenics, that whole experimental uh, laboratory in New York in June of 1920, declaring that modern civilization itself depended on Germanic and Teutonic conquest. Lachlan closed by assuring his colleagues, from what the world knows of the Germanic traits, we logically concede that she, Germany, will live up to her instincts of race conservation. The Carnegie's Institute's Eugenical News published it in their next issue as did a subsequent edition of the official British organ, Eugenics Review. The other great Carnegie administration and our administrator and leader of the American eugenics movement, Charles Davenport, he's another sweetheart, had switched similar views. Davenport saw eugenics or ethnic groups as biologically different beings, not just physically, but in terms of character, nature, and quality. Most of the non-Nordic types in Davenport's view swam at the bottom of the hereditary pool, each featuring its own distinct and indelible adverse genetic features. Italians were predisposed to personal violence. The Irish had considerable mental defectiveness because they kept fighting the British, while Germans were thrifty, intelligent, and honest. The leaders of the eugenics movement said that the working classes in the West, now here's the key to it too, all of you who think that, that these people are your, your masters and, and bosses and they're just the same as you running your national countries. The leaders of the eugenics movement said that the working classes in the West were Mediterranean types, not Germanic, and therefore had bad genes that made them stupid, unfit for reproduction, for they would pollute society with their bad genes and undeserving of democratic rights. The upper classes, by contrast, were Germanic, of Anglo-Saxon, Norman, Frankish, Scandinavian, Visigoth, etc. origin. 
To understand this view, one must know that when the Latin Roman Empire's political structure collapsed, Western Europe was conquered by Germanic military aristocracies that, in alliance with the Vatican, recreated the Roman Empire as the Germanic Holy Roman Empire of the Middle Ages. Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne, the king of the Germanic tribe of the Franks, the man who conquered almost all of Western Europe, Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800. Charlemagne then proceeded to distribute lands to his aristocratic accomplices all over the dominions, and this became the basis of the European nobility and led to it to the feudal system as well. So you see there's much more to the eugenics movement than meets the eye, and these people who dress up in fancy military uniforms like they do in England, at the top of their all families, all belong to this movement. They believe in it. In fact, if you look at the, the present bunch in, in London, they're all from Prussia and Germanic backgrounds. In fact, their name was, was Saxe-Coburg-Gotha until World War I, when it was thought to be uh, sort of ironical that uh, they were asking King was asking the British folk to go off and fight for England and Britain and, and here he is with a German name. So they changed it, looked back into the Tudor times, picked a name, Windsor, and called them Windsor instead. And that's the tricks that are played. We've had Prince Philip, of course, who is part of this Prussian-Germanic strain, come out and say that there's just too many people and he's echoed the eugenics their motto has done through the years since he's been uh, married to the Queen of England. Nothing changes. But for the average person, they see the emblems, they see the flag waving, and they think, hmm, that's our royalty. They speak for us, they identify with us, and nothing, but nothing is further from the truth. And once again, Professor Carl Quigley delved right into that whole system. Now remember, he was the historian, the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs. He goes through the history of this combination, whose goal was to bring in a world government, but a new world order as well. A planned society. Family planning turns into global planning. That's what it was all about. And he says the same thing, the Anglo-American establishment. In great detail. You've got to get those books and read them. Now, I'll go to the callers now, and we've got um, Rachel in North Carolina. Are you there, Rachel? Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. It's a pleasure. Um, I appreciate you because you're one of the last sane people on the earth. (laughs) (laughs) And um, basically, I mean, I guess what I want to ask you about is my approach to trying to help people to see the corruption because... What I generally try to do is um, I start out with the Bush, Bush Nazi connection and the yeah. coup of 1934 and J.P. Morgan and Prescott Bush, eugenics, and then bringing like the Nazi scientists over and I.G. Farben and Bayer, yeah. literally like producing AIDS-infested drugs and then shipping them out and then shipping them offshore. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I get into like the mind control experiments with you and Cameron. Yes, and then he I, was a winner. Yeah, he was a winner. And then I talk about like Norman Dodd and his interview, and then I go into the Atomic Veterans and Federal Reserve and Aaron Russo and the Money Masters. 
Yes. And then I talk about cancer viruses and the vaccines, and like the hundreds of CIA covert ops to take out the third world. Yep. And then I go into, um, you know, them funding both sides of the war, and then how, you know, we're basically being sterilized in the whole disappearing male thing. That's right. So, you know, I when I see this, and I see, and, and that's like the tip of the iceberg. Yes, I mean, literally, if I went into, you know, all the police state tactics they're doing now and ordering tanks and all the, all the current stuff, too, that's mm-hmm. out there, um, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. But when I see all this stuff, I see a connection, and I see the agenda, and I yep. see that there's, it's not just unorganized corruption. But yes. what happens is, when I first tell people all this stuff, first they say, it's not that bad. You know, don't worry mm-hmm. about it. And then they say, when I continue to tell them and show them articles and go on and on, then they finally say, okay, you're right, but it's just unorganized corruption. Yeah. It's not a coordinated effort. And so, you know, there's nothing you can really do about it, so you should just be happy. Everything's yes. okay. <laughs> and the other thing is, I see this as obviously population control. Mm-hmm. So my question is, how do I pull together, or are there sources where you can pull them into seeing that it's not just a bunch of unorganized corruption and people wanting money and power and just, you know, rampant, mm-hmm. you know, oh, and I don't even get into, like, the whole occult side with Luciferian, you know, yeah. Bohemian Grove, you know, worshiping the devil and all that. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, how do you show people that this is, they're literally taking us down right now. This is a complete war on our minds, yeah. on, you know, our bodies, on, I mean, technologically, they're just, they're just going crazy here. Yes, they are. And you're right. The only thing you can do, really, is to always have the documents from the big global meetings in your hand while you're discussing certain topics, because only then will they connect the dots and say, my goodness, they did discuss this two years ago, and here it is coming into play. And, and, and they, they can only see its coincidence for so long before they have to crumble, especially when you have the documentation there. I mean, uh, people talk about conspiracy theory. Oh, They'd rather God, believe in coincidence that. theory. Uh, one thing is a coincidence after another. And you're right, the average person can accept corruption. You see, in their own personal lives, everybody's a little bit corrupt. Mm-hmm. You cannot help it because we live in a corrupt system. It's a dog-dog parical system in a monetary system. So therefore, everyone is fearful of poverty, and everyone can understand uh, guys helping themselves. So it's so easy for them to just put it down to, to corruption. And they, that's how it's portrayed to them by the media when they throw a dog to the public once in a while. Mm-hmm. But, but when you show them the documentation from powerful people and institutions with outlining the agenda, including the takedown of the public and the eugenics uh, societies that go under different names like bioethics committees now, and you look at transhumanism, and you have the documentation in your hand with people they've heard in the mainstream, major players, famous names like the Kissingers and so on that they can identify with and show them those, that those documents, then they might have a chance. When you give them names they've never heard of before, institutions that have never heard of in the mainstream, they can't identify with it. You see, Kissinger and, and Brzezinski said that the public will come to a stage where they can't reason for themselves, they'll expect the media to do it for them. And that has really happened. And personally, I do believe that Arthur Kostler 
with all the experiments he wrote about uh, under the United Nations that would target the part of the brain that gave you your survival capabilities and individuality, I think most people actually are, are really physically damaged mm-hmm. as well. So you have to test what, them out first. Which of these documents um, could, I, could I use specifically? You can go into the Council on Foreign Relations is a, has massive websites out there. And look at the, all of the areas they cover with all their think tanks and special divisions. It's every facet of your life, including the coming food shortages. They've been working on that for 15 mm-hmm. years, just one section of them. Another section has been working on the monetary system for the world uh, for about 20 years. Every facet of your life, including population reduction, so you have to go into their own websites for the proof. And you must go into also the Rockefeller Foundation. You can get the list of all the organizations they fund. There are uh, actually speeches on YouTube. You're living with a, a visually orientated society today. They can't read anymore. Most of them can't read very long. Mm-hmm. And on YouTube, you'll hear Rockefeller himself give speeches on the necessity of eugenics being brought to the fore in the reduction of population. Well, the other thing I get is... is um you know, because I, I, I can't stop talking about it. And yes. so I get this, um, you're so negative. Um, uh, you yeah. know, eventually they just shut down. They don't want to talk to me ever again. Yes. And, um, you know, you're too negative and you know, you need to just, you know, this is just corruption. You're just, you're feeding into it. And, and I guess what they say is that I'm giving them power by focusing on it. Uh, yeah, in other words, if you don't talk about it, it won't happen, right? <laughs> Hold on, and we'll finish this after this break. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through Matrix with Rachel on the line from North Carolina. Are you still there, Rachel? Yes, I am. Yes, uh, that's the problem. The whole New Age movement has taught them to ignore unpleasantness, uh, literally mm-hmm. turn their backs on it and don't be negative and just right. be happy, like the song goes, don't worry, be happy. And mm-hmm. that ties in, as I say, with the destruction of their self-preservation abilities right. that was discussed. I think it's actually happened. It's worked with a lot of people. And they're... they're they're, they're standing on the railroad track and their train is coming down and they have their Walkmans on and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they want to be blissfully ignorant. And they'll blame you as the bearer of bad news right. for, for in interrupting. Fact, this, this happened because um, I was in this spiritual email group, you know, and they started talking about how Obama is our savior and, you know, he's coming yeah. in and going to do all this change. And I, So I finally got sick of it and I, I wrote in and I basically said, Obama is directly responsible for convincing Congress to take us down with this bailout bill that has gone from like $100 million to $3.5 trillion, and then they never even bought up the bad debt for these foreclosures, so everyone's losing their home. So he's no savior of ours, and he's also creating this complete police state right in front of our eyes and just bringing this agenda home. And it's like basically they completely attacked me. Oh, and then... The uh, spiritual teacher of this group talks about a new world order and how one world government's going to be great. Yes. We're going to evolve and get light bodies and stuff. That's right, transhumanism. So I basically yep. said this is all, you know, we have to be careful because new world order was used with Hitler and Bush, and we saw what they did. Yeah. And they it totally crucified me, and finally I said, forget it. And yes. I just 
fact, and you have to go into the history of the whole New Age movement to see where it originated from. And it was pushed by, basically in Britain, uh, MI5. Uh, they still put up members, yet they train members to go out there into society to create mystery and confusion and lead the public because it's the greatest form of mind control of all. Religion's always been used, and they have been taught to be egocentric, to purr like cats. The chosen people, which is yes. what they say. And then I'm just like, why would you even want to be the chosen people if other people are all suffering and, you know, I mean, how, what kind of bliss would that be? Yeah, well, they always Bizarre. answer you with this bad karma. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what they told me. For telling them all this stuff, they said, you know, you're going to get bad karma, and you're the one, you know, bringing all yeah. this negativity into the group and blah, 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 blah. And I'm That's just right. Like, well, if you just ignore the, the nasty things, they'll go away, and you'll live in, in a world of lightness. And, and as a United Nations worker, a woman who was talking about the war in the Middle East, and when she was asked, of why all these people are being slaughtered over there, all these innocent people. She says, well, they chose to come back there. It's their karma. I'm not kidding. Not kidding. Yeah. They, they can rationalize murder and slaughter with mm -hmm. karma. Yeah. That's another thing. It's like somehow they think that we're the chosen ones and, you know, we're going to, you know, there's going to be this divine intervention before all this happens. And I'm just thinking, well, there was no divine intervention for Iraq yes. and all the millions of people around the world that died in the third world because, you know, these covert operations were going on. Nobody saved them. No. So, and nobody's going to come to our rescue because they think the U.S. was going in slow. I mean, it was the U.S., but in general, it was these criminals that are coordinated and globalists. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really tragic. As I say, the New Age movement has fulfilled its function. It keeps them playing like children forever. They, they pay their money, they take their courses, and they think of something. they've bought their way to the top. What a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Totally a joke. But carry on, though. Don't give in. And thanks okay, for calling. Thanks. Okay, bye. Well, from Hamish myself in Ontario, Canada, where it's getting pretty cool, it's good night, and your God or your God's go with you.